0: This is a reading of the Fifth Gospel from the Akashic Record, collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner. This is Lecture 6, given in Berlin on the 21st of October, 1913. This winter we are going to embark on something which may be seen as a kind of continuation of the spiritual scientific work we have done throughout the years. The interval which has been a fairly long one for Berlin, has been filled with more than just the usual performances and the course of lectures given in Munich, for we have also been laying the foundation stone for the new building in Dornach and dealing with a wide variety of work connected with the early stages of the building work. Tonight, as we meet again in this room for the first time, let me first of all speak of our aims Connected with the building in Dornach. It is ho- to be hoped that the anthroposophical approach we represent will create an outer symbol there for the bond that exists between the hearts and the souls of all who feel connected with the efforts made in the science of the spirit our anthroposophical movement seeks to further. Basically, and you'll be aware of this from various comments made in recent years. The whole of our present-day cultural life shows that people are unconsciously thirsting for a truly spiritual approach to life. This is true not only for those who may be positively stating such a desire, but also for many others who do not even know such an approach exists. Others, again, who do not want to know about it and may even be hostile toward it, are unconsciously seeking what our approach is able to give. We might say because their hearts desire it, though this does not come to expression in clearly formulated concepts and ideas, but in some instances actually in concepts and ideas that oppose our own. It therefore was a very special occasion when we laid the foundation stone of the Dornach building Only a few of our anthroposophical friends were present, people who happened to be about at the time or were able to come at short notice. It was a very special feeling to know ourselves to be present at the inception of a building intended to be an outward symbol for the time being of our common endeavor. Standing on the hill where the building is to rise, One can see distant mountains and plains, and turn one's gaze to distant spaces that lie far beyond these, and there came to mind the crying need people have the world over for a spiritual approach to life, and for everything our spiritual movement is able to give. We were aware that beyond anything said or felt, many other symptoms of our present age clearly indicate the inner need for such an approach, a need for it to become fruitful in human souls. Such then was the feeling in our hearts when we laid the stone above which the building is to rise. We hope that the architectural forms given to the building will also reveal our aims, so that for people looking at the completed building from the outside or the inside, These forms will be like characters in a script, characters to tell them the aims we hope to realize in this world. Reflecting on an event such as the laying of the foundation stone and recalling the feelings we had at the time, it seems natural to consider the influence karma has not only on individual lives, but on the whole of human evolution. We might say that individual lives have a lesser karma, and that a greater karma is active in earth and human evolution as a whole. The wonderful thought we are able to experience is, when something like this happens out of a spiritual background, we, and that includes all who are engaged in the pursuit of anthroposophy, are the instrument, however humble, of the spirit active in world karma the spirit responsible for what karma does. To feel thus at one with the spirit of world karma is a feeling that should again and again bring together everything we are able to consider in the light of anthroposophy. It can give inner calm when we need it, inner harmony when this is needed, and inner strength, power, endurance and energy when those are the qualities required. When the truth of spiritual ideas of the world comes to us, those ideas become pulsating inner life and an energy we can feel and sense. This can be alive in us when our thoughts soar to the highest levels we are able to reach and also in every demand, even the meanest, made in our everyday work. This is something we can always fall back on when we need new strength something we can refer to when we need consolation in life. Genuine morality, genuine moral strength will only come for humanity if we direct our inner attention to true spirituality, the true life of the spirit. World karma is different for us today than it was for humanity at the time when the event took place that we have often referred to as the center, the focus of human evolution. The mystery of Golgotha. In recent weeks, speaking in other cities, specifically with reference to the present evolution of our science of the Spirit, I have drawn attention to unusual conditions concerning the mystery of Golgotha. Today I want to speak to you on the same subject, so that you too may take it into your hearts and souls. The living Christ impulse entered into the world through the mystery of Golgotha. At what time did it enter into the world? Today we know from deeper spiritual insight what it was that entered into a human body at that time in order to become part of both earth and human evolution. The preparatory studies we have made give us some understanding of the significance of the mystery of Golgotha. As I have stressed on a number of occasions, people of later ages will understand it more clearly. Now, we may ask ourselves how the mystery of Golgotha was understood at the time when it happened. It is important for us to grasp the reality of this mystery, understanding what it really was about. Was it the matter of what people were taught at the time? If that were the crux of it, people who maintained that most of the things Christ Jesus taught had also existed in earlier times would be partly right, though we know that this is not completely true. But that is not primarily what it was all about, but something entirely different. What happened on Golgotha and in connection with that event is what matters and this would have happened even if not a single soul on the whole earth had understood it. It was not a question of a fact being realized at the time, but merely of the event taking place. The significance of the Golgotha event lies not in what people have understood, but in what happened for the sake of humanity, and happened in such a way that the stream of this event has come to expression in the world's spiritual realities. The mystery of Golgotha truly came at a strange time. To get an idea of how strange it was let us consider post-Atlantean evolution. I have often said that in the post-Atlantean age human evolution, first of all, evolved in the ancient Indian civilization. I have shown the sublime significance of that civilization when people were inwardly much more open to the life of the Spirit, an openness that gradually decreased through the ages. I also spoke of the way direct interest in the worlds of the Spirit grew less and less in ancient Persian and Egypto-Chaldean times. In ancient Indian times, people took everything the world conveyed to them into their ether bodies and experienced it in their ether bodies. This was true at least for those who truly took part in that ancient Indian civilization. Such experiences gained in the ether body are highly clairvoyant by nature. In ancient Persian times, soul life was experienced in the sentient body. This was already a lower level of clairvoyance. In Egypto-Chaldean times, inner experience was gained in the sentient soul, again a lower level of clairvoyance. Then came the fourth period with the Greco-Latin civilization, and the mystery of Golgotha fell in this period. In that era, the human soul had already reached a point where perception was entirely on the outer physical plane. The civilization of the rational mind. Relating to external things was beginning. The soul developed powers relating to the outside world. In our present era, the fifth post-Atlantean civilization, life experience has so far been limited to observation of the outside world and the impressions gained through the senses. The people of this present era will, however, have to turn round and gain a new, fresh receptivity for the life of the Spirit. They must bring life in the spiritual soul to fruition. If we ask ourselves, in which of the first four post-Atlantean ages people would have been least able to understand the mystery of Golgotha, the descent of the Christ, and follow it with genuine spiritual understanding, we may well say, if, world karma did not allow this, but we may take it as a hypothesis, if the Christ had entered into a human body during the ancient Indian civilization, countless souls would have been able to understand the event, for they still had that kind of spiritual perception. Even in the ancient Persian, and indeed the Egypto-Chaldean eras, it would, in a sense, have been relatively easy to understand the mystery of Golgotha if it had been world karma for it to happen then. During the fourth post-Atlantean era, the human soul was at a point in the process of evolution that made it impossible to understand the mystery of Golgotha. We will have many more occasions to refer to the strange fact that the mystery of Golgotha waited for an era of post-Atlantean civilization when spiritual insight into the event was no longer possible. In Greco-Latin times, the intellectual or mind-soul was in the process of special development. At that time, attention focused lovingly on the outside world, something we can see in the whole of Greek civilization. Essentially the whole civilization of that time saw the mystery of Golgotha much as the women did who came to the Christ's tomb looking for the dead body and found the tomb open and the body no longer inside. They asked where the Lord's body had been taken and the answer they heard was, The one you seek is no longer here. The people of the fourth post-Atlantean era were looking for something that could not be found in the place where they were looking. They were still looking and still using the same approach when the fourth post-Atlantean era came to an end in the fifteenth century. What happened to the women visiting the tomb of Christ Jesus can be seen on a larger scale in the Crusades. The hearts and minds of many Europeans were filled with longing to find the tomb of Christ Jesus. Vast hordes of people went across to the Orient to look for what they were seeking because of a feeling they had. How can we describe what the people felt who went on the Crusades to the Orient? It was as if the whole of the Orient said to them, the one you seek is no longer here, close Surely this tells us in a profoundly symbolic form that throughout the fourth post Atlantean era humanity had to look and search on the outer physical plane, using the senses, but that the Christ must be sought on the spiritual plane, even in so far as he is in the earth world. Where was the Christ when the women looked for him at the tomb? He was in the realm of the spirit where he was able to show himself to the apostles when they opened their hearts and souls to him. They were then able to use powers that went beyond those of the senses and see the Christ as he walked the earth for a time after the mystery of Golgotha. Where was the Christ when the crusaders looked for him outwardly on the physical plane by going to the east? We perceive that At the time when the Crusaders looked for him in the East, he entered into the mystics of the West in the way he is truly able to enter into human souls. That was where the Christ power, the Christ impulse, had gone. As the Crusaders went to the East to look for the Christ in their own particular way, the living Christ impulse, such as it could be then, considering the situation in Europe, Came alive in the souls of Johannes Tauler, Meister Eckhart, and others, individuals who were able to receive him into their hearts and minds in the conditions prevailing at the time. He had moved away and entered into Western civilization. Those who looked for him in the old place had to be told, quote, The one you seek is no longer here. Close quote. The fifth post Atlantean civilization is the era dedicated to the development of the I capital, or self, that is, the spiritual soul. Human beings go through intellectual soul development, so that they may become fully ego-conscious. We have often spoken of these truths, which have been revealed through the science of the spirit. Now, at this hour, I speak of it with a very special feeling. It is understandable that views such as these meet with growing opposition when they are made known in the present age. With regard to the feeling of which I am speaking, it is nevertheless significant, for instance, that I have to produce a second edition of my book on nineteenth-century views of the world and of life. When it first appeared at the turn of the century, it offered a review of the last century, A second edition cannot do the same, of course, but there is no point in writing a review of the past century in 1913. The new version has to be different in a number of ways. Among other things, I felt it was necessary to write a long introduction, presenting an overview of developments from earliest Greek times to the 19th century. This meant that I recently had need to review from a more philosophical point of view, the philosophies of Thales, Ferricides of Syros and so on, right up to the present time. There, one is considering not only the spiritual aspect, but also historical tradition. I literally made it a discipline to refer only to philosophical aspects, leaving aside all religious impulses. The reality of the remarkable change that occurred at the beginning of the Greco-Latin era emerged with profound clarity in the process. At that time, the old perception of the world in images that had still existed in Egypto-Chaldean times changed, and people began to think about the world. From the fourteenth and fifteenth centuries onward, awareness of the I-impulse not the I-impulse itself, for that came later, developed out of the thinking approach. Considering the individual philosophers one by one, the truth of all this becomes tangible, assuming historical reality. I am therefore speaking of these things from a completely different point of view today than could be done in the book I spoke of, and with a very special feeling, It is, however, also possible to see how self-awareness, a feeling of self, entered into the human soul in around the 15th century, if we just consider ordinary history. The present era is specifically destined to force human beings to bring the energies and powers of the self to the surface, making them increasingly conscious of their selfhood. This is best achieved by limiting one's approach to outer phenomena as they appear to the senses, the kind of limitation seen in the evolution of modern science. The world no longer offers human beings the tremendous images that appeared in Egypto-Chaldean times, nor the great thought panoramas known to Plato, Aristotle, and other thinkers of their time. People now have to do without the panorama of perceived images, and without the panorama of thoughts which Aristotle still perceived in Greco-Latin times. And so the eye, having some intuitive feeling that the spirit is to be found only within itself, must grasp the nature of its being and seek to find the power of its self-awareness. And you will note that all serious post-15th century philosophers, if you consider what they were really about, have been struggling to develop a philosophy where the world is seen in a way that allows the human eye, human self-awareness, to exist. In the fourth post-Atlantean era, when the intellectual or mind-soul was developing, human minds were far removed from being able to understand the mystery of Golgotha. Yet there was one thing that could bring them close to it. We also call the intellectual soul the, in quotes, mind soul, because it really has a dual aspect. And in the fourth post-Atlantean era, the intellect, and also heart and mind, inwardness, feeling, governed human nature. In this second aspect, the heart was able to feel what was a closed book to the intellect. Understanding based on feeling, we may also call it faith, developed for the mystery of Golgotha, which means that human souls had an inner feeling for the Christ impulse. People felt the Christ impulse in their hearts. They felt inwardly connected with it, even if... UNABLE TO UNDERSTAND ITS SIGNIFICANCE AND TRUE NATURE. THE CHRIST EXISTED FOR THEM. AWARENESS OF THIS HAD TO BE LOST, HOWEVER, IN OUR PRESENT AGE OF EGO CULTURE. FOR IN ORDER TO GRASP ITSELF FULLY IN ITS INDIVIDUAL NATURE, THE EYE MUST SHUT ITSELF OFF FROM ALL SPIRITUAL IMPULSES THAT COME TO THE SOUL DIRECTLY. WE THUS SEE A STRANGE SPECTACLE. We see quite clearly that with the beginning, even the first approach, of the new era, a new lack of understanding is added to the old. And this new lack of understanding went even further than the old. If you examine the life of mind and spirit, you can understand that people of the fourth post-Atlantean era were able to receive the Christ impulse in their hearts but unable to grasp it intellectually. But because they were able to take in at least that much, they knew that the Christ existed and had an influence in human evolution. People were able to feel this. The new fifth era brought something entirely new. Not only was there failure to understand the nature of Christ, but also failure to understand anything divine and spiritual by nature. Where do we have proof? All kinds of proof could be found, but one one in particular makes the issue perfectly clear. That failure to understand increased, that is, that people were no longer able to accept not only the Christ principle, but the divine and spiritual principle altogether. The twelfth century saw a foreshadowing of ego culture when St. Anselm, Archbishop of Canterbury, found, quote, proof of God's existence, which meant that he actually considered it necessary to prove the existence of divinity. What do we prove? Things we know or things we do not know? If, for instance, a thief has been in my garden and I was able to watch from the window and saw him steal things, I do not need to prove that it was this particular individual who committed the theft. I only look for proof when I have no direct evidence. The fact that people seek to prove the existence of God is proof that He is no longer known or experienced. Anything we experience does not need proof. We prove things of which we have no direct experience today. Lack of understanding continued to increase, and today we have reached a strange point in this respect. I have on several occasions touched on the endless misunderstandings that have piled up in recent centuries, and above all in the last century, concerning the mystery of Golgotha and Christ Jesus. We have theologians today who do not merely belittle Christ Jesus, reducing him to a human teacher, albeit an outstanding one, but actually deny his existence. All this had to do with much deeper and characteristic aspects of our era. Life moves fast, however, and people are not prepared to take note. But for anyone prepared to take note, the facts speak all too clearly. Let us take one fact. I am speaking of minor things, but they are symptomatic. A well-known weekly journal recently carried a strange essay that has attracted both attention and respect. Essentially, it says, quote, The philosophies developed over the last centuries really are too, in quotes, conceptual, using concepts that are difficult to follow. Close quote. From our point of view, they are saying they cannot be grasped in the world of the senses to which we wish to limit ourselves. Oddly enough, the author of the essay finds it difficult to follow Spinoza's attempt to grasp the world on the basis of a single concept, the concept of divine substance. To gain a modern approach to philosophy, the author suggests a visual presentation with the concept at the top and further concepts splitting off and spreading out from it. In short, his idea is to visualize Spinoza's thought edifice by presenting it in diagrammatic form. People will then no longer have to consider how the thoughts arose in Spinoza's mind, but can have the evidence of their senses by looking at a film. If such, in quotes, ideals become reality, we shall perhaps be able to go to a cinema, and see not cinematic recordings, but interpretations in quotes, of the thought and idea edifices produced by prominent people. This shows how far the human soul has come in our time, and it is important to mention this symptom for a particular reason. People have failed to see that they should have seen it excuse me, people have failed to see what they should have seen if they had considered a symptom such as this in a healthy way, for there should have been laughter of derision at such foolishness, at the madness that lies in such a new approach to philosophy. The zeal coming to expression in such laughter might well be called a holy necessity. This is one symptom, for it must be taken as a symptom, indicating a great need to enter more deeply into the spirit in our age, but into the true spirit. We need not only to enter more deeply into the spirit in any way whatever, but to do so in a way that leads to the truth. Souls today need the truth of the spirit. People tend to be satisfied with things that take us far, far away from genuine spirituality, particularly in education and indeed in developing a philosophy. Our age is easily satisfied with outer appearances. In the particular stream of which we are speaking, these lead to inner untruths and to untruthfulness, however. Another symptom to illustrate this relates to the philosophy of Eucken, which has aroused considerable interest. He has not merely been given the world-famous Nobel Prize for his work, but is also praised as someone who dares to speak of the Spirit again. Praise, however, is given not because Eugen speaks especially well of the Spirit, but because people tend to be satisfied with very little today in matters of the Spirit, so long as someone holds forth about the Spirit, and because Eukin is making the same statement all the time, in an infinite number of variations. You find it everywhere in his books. It is just that people do not realize he is repeating himself. The statement is, quote, It is not enough to realize that the world we know is the world perceived through the senses. People have to find themselves inwardly, and in this way, inwardly, unite with the spirit. So, close quote. so there we have it. We have to find ourselves inwardly and unite with the spirit. This statement comes up again and again in Eucken's books, not just three or four, but five or six times. This, then, is a spiritual approach to the world. Symptoms of this kind are significant because they show us what the people who must be considered to have greatest understanding today regard as, in quotes, great today. If only people were able to read. If you open Euchen's most recent work, you find a strange passage where he says more or less that people have progressed beyond the belief in demons that existed at the time of the Christ. Today, he says, we need a different view of the Christ, one that no longer refers to demons and takes them for reality. It is indeed flattering for us in this enlightened age to be told by Eukin, the great teacher, that we have progressed beyond a belief in demons. Reading on, however, we find the strange statement that contact between the divine and human worlds engenders demonic powers. I'd like to know if everybody who had read Eukin's book laughed at Eukin's nevte, or shall we say in quotes, wisdom, which enabled him to state that we have progressed beyond belief in demons on one page and speak of a demonic element on another. His followers will of course say he did not mean it in a literal sense, that it was not meant to be taken so seriously. But that is exactly where the problem lies. People use words and ideas but do not take them seriously. A profound inner untruthfulness shows itself in this. It must, however, be part of a genuine approach based on the science of the spirit that we are aware of the fact that words have to be taken seriously and that we should not speak of a demonic element unless we intend to take the word at its face value. Otherwise the same thing may happen to us that happened to the chairman of a philosophy club where I had to give a lecture. In my lecture I had pointed out that in his book on the nature of Christianity, Adolf von Harnack says that the question as to what actually happened on Golgotha could well be left aside, something which we could not ignore. However, let me read that again. In my lecture, I had pointed out that in his book on the nature of Christianity, Adolf von Harnack says that the question as to what actually happened on Golgotha could well be left aside. Something which we could not ignore, however, was that belief in the mystery of Golgotha had arisen in those days, irrespective of whether this belief had a foundation of reality or not. The chairman of this philosophy club in Berlin, who was, of course, a Protestant, told me, quote, I read the book, but I did not find the passage you quoted. Harnack cannot have said it, for it is a Roman Catholic idea. The Catholics say, for instance, that the ins and outs of the Tunic of Trier are of little importance. What matters is that people believe. Close quote. I had to write down the number of the page for him where the passage occurs. It is probably quite common for people to read a book but somehow miss the really important and symptomatic part. We have thus cast a sidelight on our present age and the symptoms we have discovered show that one thing above all is necessary and that is to become conscientious in the spirit so that we do not uncritically accept someone representing a particular philosophy who says we have progressed beyond belief in demons and then uses the term demonic in a peculiar way. Considering that we live in a newspaper civilization today, we should not say there is little hope of cultivating conscientiousness. No, we have to say that it is all the more necessary to do everything possible to bring about such a cultivation of conscientiousness. But we have to keep our eyes open so that we see the symptoms of our age. One more thing. Ernest Renan's title, A Life of Jesus, has made an enormous impression since it was first published in the 1860s. I am mentioning this to show how people relate to the mystery of Golgotha today. Reading Renan's book, you say to yourself, well, in the first place, this individual, who has visited all the places in the Holy Land and is therefore able to provide excellent local color, has a marvelous style. It is also a book written by someone who does not believe in the divinity of Christ, but speaks with infinite veneration of the sublime figure of Christ. If we consider the work in more detail, we find that, oddly enough, in describing the life of Jesus, Ernest Renan really shows that Jesus went through what anyone has to go through, some more so, others less who has to present a particular philosophy of life to a number of people, large or small. What happens is more or less this. At first, the individual presents to the crowd what he alone believes. Then people come to him. One wants one thing, another something else. One takes the matter in one way, the next in another. Some have one particular weakness, others a different one. The upshot is that the individual who initially spoke out of an inner truth gradually gives in. In short, Renan says that for many people who have something important to say, this is essentially ruined by their followers. In his opinion, Christ Jesus was ruined by his followers. Take the Lazarus miracle, for instance. According to Renan, it was presented in a way which We would have to call a kind of confidence trick, but one that proved highly effective in spreading the affair, and that it was for this reason that Jesus let it happen. Renan presents other aspects in a similar way. Finally, having shown that the life of Christ Jesus followed a downward path, the author offers a hymn of praise such as can only be addressed to the most sublime. Let us consider this inner untruthfulness. Renan's book is, in fact, a mixture of two things. Something extraordinarily beautiful, a brilliant presentation, parts of it sublime, and mixed in with this is pulp fiction, but in conclusion a tremendous hymn to the sublime image of Jesus. To whom is this hymn addressed? It cannot really be to the individual whom Renan has described, not for anyone with sound judgment, we simply would not address such praise to the Christ Jesus presented by Renan. This, then, is another case of inner untruthfulness. What did I intend to suggest to you in this lecture? Let me summarize it briefly. I wanted to indicate that the mystery of Golgotha came at a stage in human evolution when humanity was not ready to understand it and that in our present time people are still not ready to do so. But it has been an influence for 2,000 years. This influence exists. It exists in a form that is independent of the understanding humanity has shown so far. If the Christ could have influenced humanity only to the extent that he was understood, he would have achieved little. But we shall see as we go on that we are now at a point in evolution where it is necessary to develop the understanding that has so far been lacking. We now live in an age where it will, to some extent, be necessary no longer to look for the Christ in a place where He is not to be found, but in a place where He may indeed be found. For He will appear in the Spirit and not in a body and those who seek him in the body will again and again hear the words He whom you seek in the body is not in the body. We need a new understanding in many respects perhaps a first understanding of the mystery of Golgotha. The time of no understanding must give way to the dawn of a first understanding. That is what I wanted to indicate today. We shall continue with this next time. The end of Lecture 6